Chris, Bill, good to see you guys again. And this is our third conversation in this Advent series. The themes this week are that of joy and also that older theme of heaven. Before we before I intro uh, our our music our musical guest this week, let me just mention to our our dear listeners that if you stick around long enough, we might we might end up getting into why N.T. Wright or what rather N.T. Wright got wrong about heaven. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to to hearing that from Chris. But our music this week comes from our dear friends Father JP and Danielle. I hope you'll enjoy it. Would you would you like to start us off with reading of the gospel text? Sure. Let me go to it. I thought I was going to be reading Isaiah. That's my bad. Hold on. Sword drill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to lose. There's this funny moment where this is years ago where my father-in-law was talking to his kids. I was there about why it's important to memorize scripture. 
and he said something about Genesis. And my my brother-in-law, David, he was young at the time. He was maybe like seven. He yells out in front of the whole family, say it from memory, dad. And my father-in-law didn't know it from memory. And he's like, David, not right now. Another time. <laughs> Every time I'm flipping through my Bible, I think about that story. All right. So this is Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The gospel of the Lord. See, Lord Christ. Well, Bill, let me just start off by asking, what, what what's some of the stuff you're picking up on this week from this text? So... Going off of what we've been saying, the the theme for this week in the contem- contemporary would be joy. The theme in the more orthodox tradition would be heaven, which is finally something positive from our ancient orthodox friends. Good Lord. This is the pink candle Sunday too, right? That's not- right, dude. This is Gaudete Sunday, man. Rejoice. If If you're positive like me, everybody, enjoy this Sunday because it's basically lent for the rest of the year after this just kidding um and so bonhoeffer's theme is redemption so what i'm going to be talking about uh this week is the relation the way that redemption mediates the relationship between joy and heaven which i think pastorally is really important because uh recently in our area, that's all I will say, a church in our area in the last couple of years, I hope that's vague enough, had a conference, and Chris Green, I'm sure you're going to love the title of their conference. The title of their conference was Choose Joy. Yeah. Choose Joy. So joy is something that is your fault if you don't have, yeah. and it's something you can choose to have today. And that makes me sad it makes me want to weep over the hudson valley the way that jesus wept over jerusalem um and i think heaven really hasn't been much better at least in the tradition i grew up in heaven was an escapist reality like let me not worry about what's going on here and either heaven was the place where i can finally have everything i want that i'm not allowed to have here yeah or Heaven was the way that I could absolve myself of responsibility of the injustice, oppression, and darkness going on here and just get Jesus to come take me. And as a matter of fact, a person I know, I'm being more vague, during uh, COVID 
said on Facebook, if Jesus came back now and I was sitting at the marriage supper of the lamb, I wouldn't have to worry about all the suffering going on because at least I'd be eating with Jesus. And so those two ideas, choosing joy, I think is maybe one of the most harmful and discouraging ways that we can teach about joy because there's so many of us who cannot just pick, like, if you could, what does it say about you if you're not? Like, it's not, it's not fair to teach it that way. And heaven is not escapism. Heaven is some, is, is God's intention for the earth that we're living in now. Hmm. And so I feel like starting with John in prison, I don't want to keep talking, but starting with John in prison, I think we can begin to see like how I would begin to want to explain understanding of this. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a way in which heaven, I don't want to be unfair to anyone here, but I think let's put it like this at our worst, we've talked about heaven as a place of indulgence and indifference. Yep. Right. And when in fact, it should be a call to engagement and intercession, right? And and to the to the hope of the delight that comes when, and this is something I think N.T. Wright has gotten right, when God has put everything right, right? That's what we are, you know, the call, the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a word of of hope, not wishful thinking, but hope and and I, I think that's the crucial difference that hope the virtue of hope is radically opposed to wishfulness and mm-hmm. the promise of the kingdom being at hand the kingdom that Jesus brings is is something that establishes hope precisely because it uproots wishfulness so you do not think we should sing i bowed my knees and cried holy this sunday <laughs> i mean you do you, I guess, but I, I wouldn't. Well, I think, and even more, like, we all know that song, like, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Yeah. And the things <laughs> on earth will grow strangely dim. I think inadvertently, and probably somebody's going to get mad at me for this, Brewer, maybe people won't quote me this time after I say this, but I think <laughs> uh, I think that's what we want in our fallen flesh is the things of the earth to grow strangely dim. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what... Thank God that's not what Jesus does. Yeah. And I don't think that's what he wants from us. So let me let me just say one thing about the gospel text and then Chris you can you can go off and end on how you feel like NT Wright's middle name should have been just about. NT just about right. <laughs> um, nice. The message I would want to get across to anybody listening this week is one of the most lost virtues and one of the most healthy virtues I think is the ability to be honest, even when it comes to our strongest, most deeply held beliefs of the faith. Mm -hmm. And so here's John the Baptist in prison. He, up to this point, is the prophet that got to physically put his hands on the object of all of their prophecies. He actually got to hold the body of Jesus in the Jordan River. And he's the one who in the wilderness is preparing the way of the Lord. He's the one who is the forerunner. He's the one who says, behold, the Lamb of God, right? And now he's in prison. His ministry, his career, his credibility is hinged on his belief that this man is who he says he is. And in prison, he's discouraged. 
He's in darkness. He's frustrated. And he says, please go ask Jesus if he's really the one. Yeah. And I mean, imagine us as pastors saying that. Right? It could be career suicide with the way that people place expectations on leaders. And here he is being honest. And I think when Jesus says true worship is spirit and truth worship, I think that truth part is tough for a lot of us because we feel like the whole house of cards comes down if we say, you know what, I am struggling. I am stressed. I am depressed. I am struggling in my faith. I saw the news last night. How could God let that happen, you know, in Uvalde at that elementary school? Is he really the one? Is is what's written of him really the hope that we have for the joy of all the earth, right? And what I love about this text is John teaches us that we can proclaim Christ and be honest about our doubts in the most extreme ways. And what I love about what Jesus does is two things. Number one, Jesus visits John in prison by sending his disciples. Chris, I remember once, uh, I think it was like a Twitter back and forth years and years ago, you were getting into it with somebody and that person said, you know, why do we have to visit the prisoners, but Jesus never does? And your response was, Jesus does visit John by sending us. That's Absolutely. how we are, how Jesus visits the prisoner. Yep. So, yeah, the- I, think that, that, I think that's Matthew's, that's Matthew's point, right? It's at the end of this gospel that Jesus says, he separates the sheep from the goats, right? On the basis of, I was in prison and you visited me, right? Yes. Yes. So the, and I can't remember what I said in that exchange, but what's astounding here is not just that Jesus visits John in prison. Jesus is John in prison. That's right. Mm. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Right. And so part of the mystery here, and, and I think when we talk about the difference between wishfulness and hope right on down the line between the way we've imagined salvation and the way that scripture promises salvation. The difference is we we don't account for the mysteriousness of God's presence and action. So, I, I, and I think this gospel and, and these texts point us to that, right? That it on the face of it, it looks as if Jesus is not practicing what he preaches, right? Here's how I separate the true from the false. I'm in prison and you visit me, or I'm in prison and you don't visit me. Well, Jesus, you didn't visit John. Yes, he did, right? Because he is in John and John is in him in prison. And Jesus is in the disciples coming to John. And Jesus is in the lives of those who are healed and in in the healing itself. So we, we need a much more dynamic account of how the mystery of God's work with us works if we're going to to genuinely have advent hope and not mere wishfulness or despair right and i think honesty is is crucial but what sustains that honesty is this faith in the mysterious goodness of god but i i can risk this kind of honesty because there there is this mysterious presence this goodness that is beyond all i can ask or think that that holds me in that honesty and the advent message rushes into the prison mm-hmm. it rushes into the prison the go go tell john what you see and hear and and that people are being delivered 
And you now you see Paul and Silas in prison in Acts, and it's all of a sudden like the Advent message is there. And even yes. when the bars open, Precisely, Paul and Silas yes. and the prisoners don't leave the prison. Right. That's that's what makes it Advent, right? So there's that wonderful passage from Bonifer about, you know, he's in 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 his letters and papers in prison, which he says Advent is like a prison. The door has to be open from the outside. But when the door is open, right, to, to come to your point in acts they remain right (laughs) they don't they don't dance and sing their way out of the prison and leave behind the prisoner and the other prisoners and the jailer they stay with the other prisoners and and the jailer to the good of his family and i think that that's the mystery right that allows them to be honest but to be honest in faith right to honest in this openness to the unaccountable goodness of god the only other thing i I think i'm sorry chris no i just i mean i think obviously but just to state the obvious all of this is directly tied to the scandal of that kind of that that messianic expectation right that like jesus isn't isn't coming or or working or acting or speaking or whatever in the ways that I I imagined or or the ways that I thought. But I love what you're saying, Chris, there about that honesty being sustained by that faith, which is a kind of, I mean, so when I hear you saying that, I and then I read this text, I hear, I hear what John says less as a kind of accusation and more as a kind of hope. Like I, I'm trusting there's more here going on than I, I can than I can see or understand. But yeah. And it's, that's right, Brew. I think that's exactly right. But I think in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, and this, we see this fleshed out by Peter in particular ways, but it's in this particular case, we're talking about John the Baptist, but that faith is this kind of devotion to Jesus that is in, at work in spite of the fact that what we expect always turns out to be a, at least a little bit off. So there's this, this intimacy with Jesus our desire to be intimate with Jesus that constellates around expectations of what he will do that turn out, if not to be entirely wrong, at least partially wrong. So notice in the, in the gospel here, it's not that John is troubled by what Jesus is not doing. He's troubled by what he hears Jesus is doing. Right. When John heard in prison, what the Messiah was doing, right? So there's Mm. one kind of, question that comes out of what god does not do right bill gave the example of the the problem of evil what happened in uvalde for example the walmart in virginia recently like these kind of tragedies in which it seems god did not act right but john is troubled by what he hears jesus is doing that's outrageously good point man i never noticed that he hears what jesus is doing he's like wait a minute this is this is not what i expected the messiah to do now i i think the it's easy here to scapegoat john as listen man you you know that who this is right right? you were born for the reason or for the purpose of identifying him as the one who is to come but i i think that also misses the point john is forced to this question precisely because he's had this revelation that no one else has had it's because he's a prophet and more than a prophet that this kind of question arises in him so i think there's a there's a kind of doubt 
on the near side or on 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 this side of the revelation of Jesus. And then there's another kind of doubt on the far side. If you, if you go to the James text really quickly, the he says, be patient, beloved, unto the coming of the Lord. And then he gives the example of the farmer who waits, right? Which makes it seem so natural, right? Because that's a that's an an image right out of agrarian life. The farmer waits for the crop, being patient until it receives the early and latter rains, right? And you you have to be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And it's easy to hear that as stay strong, God will come. In other words, you need the strength in the meantime. But actually, you need the strength for what happens when the Lord comes and what happens after. Yeah. Right. So it's not just that I need strength to hold on until the end. Right. So the, the churches I grew up in, we had testimony service all the time. And there was this kind of boilerplate testimony. Thank God that he saved me, sanctified me, filled me with the sweet Holy Ghost. Pray for me that I endure to the end. That was the the form that these old school Pentecostals used. And what you have there, right, is what's being betrayed is this notion that I I just need the strength to hold on until God shows up. And when he shows up, I'm going to get everything I want and I'm going to get set free from everything I don't want. Right. Indulgence and indifference. Right? Heaven's going to come, which means now I can have whatever I want. I don't have to keep resisting my urges and nobody can demand anything of me I don't want to give. But actually, what I think scripture is saying to us over and over again is you're going to need strength when the Lord comes because of what that's going to mean for your life in the aftermath. And, and that's exactly what James says. If you want an example of suffering and endurance, look to the prophets. But who are the prophets if they're not the people to whom the Lord has come? The burden of the Lord is on them. And, and so what's happening here with John is not because he missed the point somehow i mean yes he did but he saw the lord in a way no one else had ever seen the lord and that's precisely what opens him up to this this honesty bill that you're talking about but also the the temptation of confusing his desire for the for the lord with his desire for the things he thought the lord was going to do yeah One last point from the James text. That's why I think it's important that James says the judge is standing at the doors. Like the one who comes, comes in judgment. Back to our theme from last week, right? That that when the gates of heaven, you know, as Jacob says, you know, I was, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Like where the gates of heaven are, where where our lives open up to the heavenly realm. That's where judgment is taking place. Discernment, separation is is happening at those moments. But I think it's it's only those who who've had that kind of prophetic sense of of God's goodness who actually have these kinds of questions: Are you the one, or should we look for another? Right. This is the 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 questions of the saint are different from the questions of the fool, or the questions of the sinner, or the questions of the simple. Hmm. I mean, it is interesting you making that point that he's he hears what the Messiah is doing and then sends word for this question. And Jesus' response is doubling down on 
<laughs> what he's Here's doing. what I've been doing. And then that, and then so Jesus says, look, look at what's happening. Blind eyes are open, the deaf are hearing. And then says, and blessed are those who do not take offense at me. Right. There's something scandalous in the kind of deliverance that Jesus is bringing about. Now, this is hard for us to hear, especially for those of us who are Pentecostals. I think because we've identified the miraculous as the proof of Jesus' legitimacy. So when we mm-hmm. read this list, what we hear is, oh, he's doing miracles. That proves that he's really the one. But that's, of course, silly, right? That That's not at all the case. And I think some of the scandal here is that Jesus is doing this instead of doing what John expects, right? So it, he's he's offended by what Jesus is doing because why are you giving your energy to that? So so what if the deaf hear? If what they hear is still the oppressive word of Rome, right? What good does their hearing do? So what if their eyes are opened? If what they see is Pilate is still the one calling the shots at the end of the day, what good is it that they can see? Yeah. And so I think I think there's a way in which John knows the Lord well enough not to be impressed with magic. Right. So what? Like, so you, you've performed a miracle. Great. How is the world any different now for those people who have suddenly been? Yes, the, their quote unquote quality of life went up, but the structures of the world remain unjust. Yeah. I'm still in prison and I'm here because of what Herod did. And you've not said a word to Herod. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think we need to take really seriously John's honesty and his boldness. And, and the fact that he's recognizing precisely because he knows Jesus, that, that these things are signs, the, the opening of blinded eyes and deaf ears, the, the, the poor having the gospel preached to them. Those things are signs of a fulfillment that has not come. And he's right to say, wait a minute, why isn't the fullness coming? Because I think this is the difference, right? Advent is not about waiting for God to come, but waiting for the God who's already come to do what he's promised. Mm -hmm. So when you know the God who has come and you see that his coming has not made the difference his coming should make, it creates what Romans 8 calls groaning yeah and and only the saints and prophets and those of us who get some taste or glimpse of that can know what that means right that god is able and yet herod remains herod and Pilate remains Pilate, and the the temple is still a den of thieves and yes the poor have the gospel but they're still poor and right that should create a kind of groan in us you know I'm, I'm reminded of the story when they're about to when Stephen is preaching in Acts I think it's six or seven and when they hear the message they stop up their ears mm. and they run at him and I'm also reminded of Peter you know cutting Malchus's ear off and Jesus immediately hearing healing the ear and it's almost this almost goes to the escapism part now where it's like Jesus is doing these things he's opening eyes he's 
allowing people to speak. He's allowing people to hear so that they're not unattuned to where this act of God is going to be happening. Like we want to go deaf because I don't want to hear any more news reports. We want to go blind. I want to, you know, I want to be at the marriage supper of the lamb with Jesus and not have to see, hear, or speak to any of the other things that are happening. And I think Jesus, by, by telling John, I'm making everyone awake to the sound of Rome and to the sound of Pilate and to the sound of the oppressed so that they can see where I'm coming. So don't cut Malchus's ear off. He needs to hear the mockery that's going to happen tonight. He needs to hear the false accusations because that's where I'm coming. That's what I'm coming to. And if you're deaf and blind and lame to it, you won't be able to be awake to where I'm bringing the hope. And I think that's what the Isaiah text is saying. Yeah. And I think, Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to get to the Isaiah text, but that I wanted one more thing from the gospel to, to point out when Jesus says, you know, what did you go out to see? He's, he's making the very point bill that you're drawing up, which is, listen, you came out here to see John. What were you looking for? Look at what you were looking for. Consider what it is that drew you out here to see this man perform out, out here to these extremes yeah. Pay attention to what it is you're paying attention to. And he says, you didn't come out here to see a reed shaken by the wind. You came out here to see a prophet and more than a prophet. And yet when the kingdom of heaven comes, this more than is, is as if it were nothing. Right? The, the, the least in the kingdom is greater than he who is greater than anyone else born of women. So I think the point Jesus is making here is that the the mystery of heaven's coming near is that it opens us up not only to the more than that is true already of everyone and everything, but is infinitely more than because it's God at work. And this this is a, a bit of a footnote, but I think one worth one worth making that we are not only more than what has happened to us. We are more than what we are. Yep. We, we're not only more than the context of our lives. I was talking with someone about this um, just, just yesterday. We're more than the content of our lives. Like John is more than John. And this, it, but you have to have your eyes and ears open to that in order to really feel the pressure that comes from the injustices of the world. And I I think what we want in that, then what we should be praying for. And here, I'm just reiterating your point, Bill, is I don't want to be indifferent. I don't want to be indulgent. I, I want to be attuned to the goodness of God in such a way that the gone wrongness of the world, I, I can feel it. And I can see why things should not be this way. And I and I can be honest in, in the way that, that John is honest. Honest in a way that allows for an, an announcement that Jesus is coming. Jesus is the one who's already come, is coming in fullness. And allow that to kind of shatter our wishful thinking and any despair that might come when our wishes are disappointed and open us up to, to hope. Let's talk about Isaiah. What I, what I, again, find interesting is when you look at 
the announcement of John the Baptist, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There's two ways that you can read that the way that's phrased. It can be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, meaning he's in the wilderness and he's crying. Or if you look at some of the other manuscripts, it could say the voice of one crying. And then what he's saying is in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Mm. Right. And so I think it seems like the earlier manuscripts are pointing to the latter, like the voice is saying, go into the wilderness and there prepare the way of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think sticking with this theme where blind eyes need to be opened so that we can see the locations. If when you read Isaiah 35, all of the goodness of God is happening in the location of all of the brokenness. So streams are coming into the desert. So it's like, in the narrative, in the linear narrative, we're going from the wilderness to Canaan. But in the meta narrative, and I think this is where we'll agree N.T. Wright may not be mystical enough, Canaan is coming into the promised land. The new heavens, the new earth are descending into the old one. Jesus is praying that kingdom come, right? Not thy kingdom go. Yeah. And so there's this expectation where we're going to be tempted to leave the locations where all the stuff is happening bad. And I mean, if you just quickly go through it, like the wilderness and the desert are glad because water's coming. The weak hands are made strong. The anxious heart is told not to fear. The blind eyes are open and the highway exists in the wilderness. And so it's like there's this reality where we're going to be tempted to be pulled to want to move away from where these things are happening and get other people away from where these things are happening. But Jesus keeps pushing you back into the location of the tumult mm-hmm. and saying it's like i don't know I, I i'm sure everybody's heard this phrase but like i make all things new as opposed to making all new things right like he's in that location the sword is becoming the plowshare the sword isn't being thrown away right and plowshare purchased the plate the place of the prison itself is becoming the promised land and so there's just something very encouraging, but also very difficult about recognizing like it's it's where you are in your pain that Jesus is going to do something. And that's what the Advent message is saying, like peer into the barn so that you can learn to peer into the tomb, because that's where that's where it's happening. Yeah. And so, again, it just destroys the escapism and it destroys the blissful ignorance and says he's going to heal you so that you can see your ailments. Mm-hmm. He's gonna, right. and the more healed you are, the more aware of those ailments you are. Not, not in the past tense, but in the present tense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's that. I think the Isaiah text is very powerful in the simple fact that if you leave the wilderness to go try to find the place of springs, you're going to end up in a wilderness because the springs are happening in the wilderness. So you're going to go away from the location where the good news is coming. And I, that that's what's in. Mary's song, right? That that's a canticle or can be read this week instead of the psalm. That when when God comes, the God who has come comes to you, he's going to scatter the proud, cast down the mighty, lift up the lowly, fill the hungry, send the rich away empty. And that's not a separation in which we end up with the mighty on one side and the lowly on another. It's the only way in order, the only way to save the mighty from what they imagine strength to be 
is to bring them down to the place where the lowly are yes so that they can begin to realize that that is in fact not what they imagined it to be right the rich are sent away empty not to be left empty but precisely to realize that they needed to detox from what they imagined was right and good what they imagined that they needed from the wishfulness that we've been talking about and the indulgence and indifference that that wishfulness generates they they have to be sent away into the kind of emptiness that helps them recognize the fullness that's already there not that's going to come is already there right that it, that jesus is with you john in prison are you the one or should we look for another he's he's so close to you john he's closer to you than you are to yourself mm -hmm. right and and so john's prison then is is in fact just an it, it is Mary's womb. Like everything is inside of the act of God. And Mary embodies that, like quite literally right? embodies the, the one in whom all things are held together. I mean, that, that's the, that's the scandal slash mystery of incarnation is that inside of the body of this young Palestinian woman, is the one who holds all things together and he holds all things together in that hidden secret way he he is knit together in her womb and in that he's knitting together all things and in, including john's experience in this prison this this experience of doubt that is born of his deep faith i think you know, a few years ago, I was having a conversation with um, Ricky Moore, and obviously his part of his expertise being in the prophets and him being something of a prophet himself. Um, we were talking about wilderness, and this wasn't even really a point he was making to me. He was reflecting on some stuff I was bringing to him, just seeking counsel. And I know the Isaiah text obviously makes this connection with wilderness and desert, dry, and 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 rivers and waters. But in that conversation, I realized that wilderness isn't necessarily desert um, or only ever desert, but mm -hmm. that it's just unknown and it's uncharted. That's and good. so I, I think hearing this, Chris, and and then even reflecting on the Magnificat, like the rich need to be brought there. There's a kind of knowing that they have, they, they have the world mapped and charted in a particular way. Right. Yeah. And that's allowed for a kind of success, but they need to go away empty. They need to go and, and be brought to unknowing. Right. I mean, I think about this and yeah, you know, it's not just abstract or metaphysical or theological reflection, but like that is our life with God, right. This kind of knowing and then being brought into unknowing, you know, knowing and then being brought in into unknowing so that so that god can trans transform us um so that idols can be destroyed for us um but that that wilderness you know bill to your point about how maybe a way to read that that gospel text that yeah like that's a place that's a place we need to be because god's doing a transforming work there in this uncharted and in this in this unknown Mm 
Well said. And it's crazy because go back to the Choose Joy conference. Like you can't, you can't choose your way out of the wilderness, especially right. if it's what Brewer just said. If it's the place where you're lost, right? Like you can't, you know, if a if a hiking party is lost on a mountain, you can't just radio to them and say like, choose the right path, and you'll get like, no, we're lost, right? right, right. So it's like all of this, this whole topic of like, here's what we can do. I can find brokenness very easily. I can find what's wrong with me very easily. I can name the things in me that need to be redeemed with more honesty than I can name my good qualities, right? Just ask Jacqueline, my wife, she'll tell you. Like, I think it's, I think it's, this is inviting us to do what we actually can do. It's easy for us to find the darkness. Mm. It's easy for us to find, to, to know that we're lost. It's exhausting to preach theologies that make us have to deny reality. Yeah. So this is saying, this is essentially saying to us, like, what's, what's one of the Advent lines? Stop and look up. Like, it doesn't say go. Like, look up. Like, where you are right now, stop there and look up. Because that's mm -hmm. where your redemption is coming from. Mm -hmm. We can all do this. But so much Christian theology recently teaches us to deny chris remember when you came to our church and you jonathan and chris house did the jesus paradox com conference and you yeah. guys were saying like let go and hold on was like the funny joke of the weekend right yeah yeah it just it just feels like that's what this is beckoning us to is like stop overcomplicating this mm -hmm. trying to proclaim and exclaim and affirm all this stuff that's not happening say what is happening i'm thirsty that's what Jesus says. I feel forsaken. That's what Jesus says. Let this cut pass. That's what Jesus says. And it's there that you find yep. the redemption. Like Mary lingers at the tomb weeping because it's easier to linger at the tomb than it is to run away and like try to come up with what might have happened. It's just stay there. Stay yep. there for a minute because that's where it seems like it's happening. Yeah, and I, I, absolutely. And it's uh, just to demystify this for anyone who's having a hard time tracking i think it really it really is as simple as pay attention to what's happening in your life the best you can simple as that and even if that means paying attention to the fact that you can't pay attention to what's happening in your life reach right just notice that you have a hard time noticing one of one of the things that that i've been working through and i may share more about this in the future but i i I stumbled on this quote from Balthasar, Hans Erzman Balthasar, about Advent. And he talks about having these kinds of manners with God in which you are delighted to meet him in his daily visits, not in the living room of your life, but in the hallways and the kitchen of your life. And I read it and I had like simultaneously, I had this, oh, that's a really cool idea or something like that hopefully it wasn't quite that cringy but like that kind of response and then another part of me a much truer response of of being angered by it like a spark of like dear god i don't want to be on pins and needles 24 hours a day waiting for jesus to, sh to surprise me in the hallway mm. like I, I i love my friends but i i don't love the thought of at any point you know i'm I'm getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I bump into Brewer in the hallway, like, Oh, Hey man, where did you come from? Right. Um, like it's, 
something about that annoyed me. And mm -hmm. so I, at first, and then I had the response of, I don't want to have been annoyed by that. Does that mean there's something off in me that I'm annoyed by the thought of Jesus just springing on me? <laughs> but the, the point here is all I have to do is notice that and hold it up. Like, I don't know if that, I don't know what all is happening to me and I don't need to know, like, I don't need to have the right interpretation of what my responses are. I just need to be aware that is how I'm responding right now. And this is, you know, a tiny example, but I think some of, some of honesty is recognizing that our self-assessment is never going to be adequate we don't know our because we are more than and because we are not only more than but are held in the infinite life of god we're never going to understand ourselves we're never going to know exactly what's happening and we don't need to like we need we need a certain kind of self-awareness but we don't need a kind of exhaustive self-understanding and we we simply need to notice and to hold up what we notice with that open-handed honesty you were talking about. I mean, this could be real cheesy, but you know I love the romantic comedies and stuff like that. Films, as I call them. And you will never call them films. No. <laughs> but like there's like in in there's like a there's a way to talk about lostness as tragic and there's a way to talk about lostness as romantic, right? Like you can mm. say, I feel lost in my life. I yep. feel lost in my calling. I feel lost in my job. And then you could say romantically, you know, when I'm around you, I'm lost. Yeah. Like, I'm lost in your eyes to be really corny. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And I just, I think that there's a lot of times where we feel lonely because we don't actually have a category for the fullness of what it means to be one with somebody. Mm. And so I think sometimes we're closer to God than we think because absolutely like, in a in a more immature closeness to him, I can sense me in on one side of the room and then him on the other, and I know that we're together. Like we have a category for me and you being in the same room. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a way in which Christ is so in us and we are so in him that for us it feels like there's only one person in the room. And so we yeah, feel alone. That's but right. Being alone is actually a being lost in him in a romantic way. That, that's that's the point I was trying to make earlier with what Mary knows that John hasn't learned yet mm. is that Jesus is inside of him in that prison. Wow. Right. That John is in the prison thinking, I'm hearing about all of this stuff he's doing out there. I have to send a message to that other one wow. who's at a distance from me and get word back. Mm. And I think I think the reason I, I feel confident the reason Jesus does not travel to John because he's already there because he's already there. Whew. And if he has, if he had traveled to John, it would have simply yeah. reinforced John's categories. It would have simply left John with, I was right all along, right? That yeah. you, you are someone among many that I'm looking to, to save us from these oppressors. But actually, John has to have the epiphany that Mary has had, that no, 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 right? Greater is the one who's in you than the one that's in the world. The one that's in the world being who you imagine Jesus to be versus right. Jesus as he actually is. The one who is in you 
is in you, not because you understand it, not because you understand yourself, but because he's holding you together. And the one who's in the world is the one you imagine him to be. That's what you can identify. That's what you can hear and see. But faith is hearing what can't be heard and seeing what can't be seen. And it's that that Mary has that we're all called to. That realization that this prison I'm in, I can be honest about it. But if it's faithful honesty, eventually it's going to open up on this delightful awareness that this wilderness was always, it was uncharted precisely because there's no way to chart the goodness that God is bringing. Right, mm -hmm. that this prison is not, in fact, containing me. Right, it it is an open space that God is holding for me to be present as witness. Right, that what John does in this moment in the prison is far greater than what he does at the river. Mm. Right? I mean, one doesn't stand without the other, but this is the greater. This is this is the infinitely more than that. That this space is space God is holding. It's not a space that's holding John only yeah it's a space that god is holding for john for our sake and i mean that that's the that's the wonder of advent that that's what we are holding out for and and you can't choose that right? you can't decide for that but you don't need to right i mean i'm i'm thinking of the verse that says you know weeping may endure for a night joy comes with the morning like you can't you can't make morning come. All you can do faithfully is just say what time it is. Yes, yes, yes. It's 3.30 and I really wish it was 6. Like that's what you can say. You can't yep. You can't make the morning come. Nope. But you well, can't that, say what time it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so if you go back to the Isaiah text and then we, we probably should turn to our good friend, Nicholas Tom. But this, I want to talk just a little bit about the the highway but at the end of that passage, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Right. This is something that's happening to them. They're not choosing joy. Right. Right. They're, they're being, they're moving and being moved along this road. And at the end, they're, they're delivered. Right? They're delivered into this singing by their singing. They're delivered into this joy by their joy and sorrow and sighing flee away. And I think this is not, yeah, I mean, let's talk quickly about that, the highway that Isaiah is, is prophesying. Well, I want to, I'll throw some questions at you, Chris, if that's okay. Yeah. Your, one of your books is sanctifying interpretation right where the act of interpreting is in fact the thing that sanctifies us as opposed to coming to the right conclusions and then we are sanctified it's the, right. it's the wrestling so one of the things you said to me last night um because sometimes me and you talk behind brewer's back when he bells on us for the podcast we get on the phone and we talk about him uh one of the things you said was it's precisely the traveling down the highway yeah. that takes the ravenousness out of the beast it takes the uncleanliness out of the unclean and it leaves only you know the wolf that lies with the lamb and yep. the reason why there's no unclean on the highway is because they've been made clean by traveling down this highway can you talk about can you just talk a little bit about the 
the dichotomy between some of us feeling like we have to get to the end of the highway and then we're good, or we have to get yeah. the interpretation, then we're good, as opposed to this happening as we travel in our exile. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the same thing is true here as in the gospel. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are fearful or of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Right. Again, we need strength, not until God comes, but because God is here, has come. Wow. And he's come with vengeance and terrible recompense. And, you know, one way of hearing it, I would say a way of mishearing it is to think he's come with vengeance against others. That's true up to a point. I mean, there's a reason people are weak and feeble. There's a reason people are afraid. There are those who make them afraid, or there are those things that make them afraid. And he does come, I think, with vengeance against all that is wrong. But that begins in me. Yes. Right. The, the vengeance of God is, first of all, a vengeance against what is oppressive in me. The ways in which I'm wronging myself and wronging others. And he comes and saves me with that vengeance. And that's what leads to the eyes of the blind being open and the ears of the deaf being unstopped and the lame leaping like deer and the speechless singing for joy, right? So what you have is this kind of loosing of our frailties and our brokennesses into the fullness of life. And that launches us on this path, on this journey, this holy way that makes us holy as we travel it, right? It's not the case that God forbids any unclean ones on the way, but those who are unclean unclean at the start of the way, by the end are cleansed, right? It, there's this line, it sh the unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools shall go astray. So there are fools on this way, but not for long. Because the foolishness gets walked out of them. Right? The, the, the ravenousness gets walked out of them by this way that they have to travel. And the way that they, they find because they've been opened up right by the coming of God. So God has traveled to them and that has opened them up to travel this road back to God. And I, I think that that sense of reciprocity or the coming of God enabling us to go to God. It's precisely the nearness of God that wakes us up to his seeming absence. It's precisely because John has known the Lord that he has this question. Are you the one or should you look for another? Right. The sword that pierces Mary's heart is the nearness of Jesus that she knows. The prophets are the one, as James says, who know how to wait because they've encountered God. They, they know the word of the Lord. They felt the burden of it. And so the, the moving of that path back to God, you know, is a way that straightens us as we walk it, right? It, it is, it's shaping us as we move. And to me, the hopefulness of that is so different from I think the wishfulness that God would just set me right so that I can go on and live my life from that having been correctedness. You know? Like God would just make fix me, then I could live like I'm supposed to live. 
but that's that's just not how God works, right? It, there's no there's no fixing. The, the, as you said earlier, Bill, it's precisely as we're being healed that we kind of come aware of our ailments and the ailments of others around us. So that, I mean, to your point, all of us are so much nearer to God and so much more like God than we would ever dare imagine. God is so much al already present and already working that we would be ashamed if if we could see just how our, our worlds would be rocked if we if we had even an inkling of how intimate God is already with us. I think you know, Chris, all of this. I was going to remark on this earlier, but I think it probably works here too. Is that Jesus? I mean, obviously, you've said this, said as much, but Jesus is not not just another person in the room. Jesus yeah. isn't another person in the room. Yeah. And this wilderness road, this kind of God meeting us there, right? Like, obviously, my mind does go to the the disciples on the road to Emmaus yeah. and him meeting them. But that that being the revelation really the, the revelation that happens right he does meet them on this road um as they're kind of living into this uncharted we don't know we don't know what's going on you know he teaches them the scriptures op opens them up to it but then he disappears right he vanishes from their sight um at the breaking of the bread and that like, I guess I, I'm just hearing this and I just think, yeah, I mean, this, this has to be what they're experiencing. Like their world is being rocked precisely in that way, right? You are not another person in the room. Yep. Um, and so again, back to a previous point, this is why this is grace to John that he doesn't go. I mean, he is bringing more of himself. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I can end with this for now, and then we can shift to the conversation about heaven. Um, the poem that I, I wrote, I think last year, maybe a couple of years ago, and it, it speaks just to this point, and you're, you're referencing it right now, Brewer. And it came out of a meditation on a line in the Gospel of Luke, why do you seek the living among the dead? Take, for example, this open window or this unsealed jar filled with nothing. Now think, the chasm over which the spirit broods, the gape between the cherubim, the virgin's tomb, the contracted womb. See? Emptiness, no longer empty. The grave is not a void, not to be avoided. For he is not here. Standing in the crowd or out from it, he is not here. No more among the living than among the dead. He is not here. Not another body in the room, but the room itself. Emptied for us. An absence holding all our attention. That's it, I think, right? That he's, he's emptied out the emptiness with his fullness. Right? The rich are sent away empty to discover that the emptiness is not empty. Right, The grave is not a void and not to be avoided. 
Mm. And gracious to know that that's hope. (laughs) Now you don't have any wishes left, but that's hope. And Chris, don't you think it's pretty staggering? Every time I hear that line, why do you seek the living among the dead? You, you, you talked about how we're so much more than we realize we are. Yes. They didn't think they were seeking the living among the dead. Right. They thought they were seeking the dead among the dead. Right. And the angel says to them, why are you? See-? And they're like, they easily could have said, what do you mean? Why are we seeking the living? Like Jesus yeah. is speaking a better word about John. Then, and John can't hear it, but Jesus is telling everybody, no one's greater yeah. that's been born. And the angels are thinking more of us than we are of ourselves. Why are you seeking the living? Mm. I didn't know I was seeking the living. Like, I think in our honesty about our ailments, we also find an honesty about our goodness that we never could have found until yes. we're honest about our ailments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, could, couldn't agree more. This is kenosis. He empties out the emptiness. For God to empty God's self out is not for God to become less God. It is to empty out the the emptiness and fill all things. Yeah, what what Ecclesiastes imagines as vanity turns out to just be glory. Mm. As they say at church, I see that hand, you can put it down. (laughs) all right brewer transition let's talk about we'll take a few minutes for those who are who are still who've endured to the end (laughs) well if you've made it this far then let's let's talk a little bit about heaven and and what maybe nt Wright uh where his where his overcorrection comes comes to play bill's shaking his head but i'm loving it (laughs) And somewhere Father Preston uh, is dying inside. I know he's a a huge N.T. Wright fan. N.T. Wright changed my life for the better. And then I met Chris Green. (laughs) And Chris Green showed me that he's N.T. Meh, kind of right. (laughs) N.T. N.T. wishes he was right. Well, we're going to keep our focus right just on what he says about heaven. Which has struck okay. such a chord with people. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I think it'd be hard to overstate how much of an impact what he, what Wright has said and written about heaven, how it's resonated with folks from our circles, right? Look, 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 maybe we should start there. Why do you guys think that is? Like, why do you think what he says, you know, we're not meant to go to heaven, heaven is coming to us, all that. Why has it struck such a chord, do you think? I mean, do you agree that it has? I guess it's the first question. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I think uh, there's at least a couple of things. I mean, I think one is that it, there was, there is among a lot of people in our circles, a kind of rejection of a spirituality that was, that felt like it ended in abstraction, Right, that that all felt so abstract, and so I I don't even know what that is. Like I hear these, I've heard, I've grown up hearing these folks talk about do what heaven seemed vague. Right, yeah, it seemed vague. I hear them talking about it. I think I'm not that interested in that. Right, (laughs) that picture is something I'm interested in, and I think you know more positively, um, 
maybe there's also an appeal there to something, you know, embodied and participatory, right? This is mm -hmm. something that we are, we can't make happen, but God invites us to participate in some kind of gracious way. Okay. Bill, what do you think? Why is, why has it hit us like this? I think for, for me, I, again, I grew up under like, don't get left behind kind of teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the, it's one of the things NT Wright talks about is, you know, when you look at churches that were built early, they're built out of stone. And when you look at churches that are built under, you know, a very thin, naive rapture theology, they're built cheaply. And it's because it's like, why, why invest money or time or energy in a place that we're going to be leaving soon? And N.T. Wright and his book, Surprised by Hope, really made me realize, wow, like we have a responsibility on this earth to stay a while, to open up the decisions we're making to, to ask ourselves, will they affect, you know, the fifth and sixth generation from now? You know, it does matter if I throw the plastic bottle into the garbage or into the recycling bin because we're going to be here. Like, this is where heaven is coming. And we're we're now we're like he, he helped me realize we're like the spies that are bringing the fruit into the wilderness. Like we're beginning the process of building heaven here now and that we will be enraptured when we see him. But we will be bringing him and ushering him here so that the tree of life can feed the nations and that the new heavens and the new earth can come. And so for me, it, it, it made me feel like I actually have more of a responsibility than just to scare people into getting saved. And it also, I think more importantly, helped us read the Bible better. It opened up the scriptures in a brand new way that was more integrated and more holistic than the way that we were reading them up until that point. But I'm yeah. sure you you think that NT's initials stand for not totally. So why don't you explain to us? <laughs> why do you? I, don't know. I I love what you said. I remember the conversation we had, and I I've I've grown to really enjoy the things that you say about Chris. Why do you think that was a little too humanistic? And what part of the mysticism do you think is missing from it that we need? Mm -hmm. That we actually need in our discipleship process here. Yeah, and I, I as I as I told you then, I think we have to make a difference between what NT Wright has said and what NT Wright has been heard to say. Okay. Right? So I, I think and this this is true of any figure that has kind of popular appeal, right? That often what the populace takes from what was said is not what was actually said. Right? And American evangelicals, I mean, we, we, we just, we tend to misread everything. Think of poems like Emily Dickinson's The Tell the Truth Until It Slant or the Road Less Travel poem. Like we've made those things into, to me, made those things, they're, they're very popular, right? But the popular understanding of them are absolutely at odds with what the poems themselves actually say, right? So some of this problem may not be so much with right as with what people have made of right. So I, I want to make that distinction first. That said, I think right himself makes two fundamental mistakes. 
one is he's too quick to talk about what the Christian tradition got wrong instead of simply saying some Christians have misunderstood this. Interesting. And like, I, I think all of us are, we have this bad habit of saying the church when what we really mean is a few of the Christians I know. <laughs> and that's a pretty serious mistake to make, right? No matter who you are, no matter what the conversation is. Like, no one knows what the church has said. You you know, and I know, what some Christians have said. And that that is an enormous, like, I can't overstate the difference between those things. And I think it is true that some Christians have presented heaven in this way that is indulgent and indifferent. But that's not what the church has said. Right? It It, it, it is true that some of us were raised in this, this kind of toxic fear in which the coming of Jesus, the rapture, was something to be dreaded. That's true, but that's far from what the church taught, right? And and that kind of escapism that Wright is trying to correct, while I think it is a real problem, it's not the tradition's problem. And and, and that's not just a you know a point about method or or me being too exacting. It's when we are starting to see one thing as if it were the whole thing, it's a sign that we're not seeing well at all, mm. right? So if you're misdiagnosing the problem that badly, then whatever it is you're offering as the curative is is not actually going to bring about the healing you imagine it will, right? So that's the first thing. But that's, a I think, a fundamental problem. The more even more troubling problem though is that he's imagining too much continuity between the world as we imagine it now and the world god is bringing so in his emphasis on heaven coming to us he's imagining heaven coming to us in such a way that and again i think this is true of him not just the way that he's been received but he's imagining in which there's there's very little radical change like justice is coming and that's going to bring a certain kind of change, no doubt, that is in some sense radical. But the world on the other side of the coming of Jesus is this world, right? I mean, that line you quoted earlier about all things new, not all new things. The way that Wright will talk about it is it's not so much new creation as renewed creation. That I think that is a deeply mistaken claim because the coming of God is so transfiguring so transformative eye is not seen ear is not heard it is not entered into the heart of a human being what god has prepared for us we cannot ask or think or dare to imagine what it is that god intends to bring to bring about so i think there's much more discontinuity not not in a way that decimates or desecrates anything that god has made but the fulfillment is so much greater than simply this world fixed right it's not simply this world without bloodshed and this world without betrayal it is that but it's infinitely more than that right and i think that while right is absolutely correct to say that all wrongs are going to be put right that, that every injustice is going to be rectified. 
that all this brokenness is going to be healed and that this world is going to be brought into its fullness. I think that's exactly right. But he needs to also go on and say, and that will be bring about and be brought about by a transfiguration in which all things are not just renewed, but transfigured into a newness that we cannot now imagine so that we, we know as we are known. And that more than that we talked about and the infinitely more than that Jesus promises that the kingdom brings about is, is truly possible. And I think that's what the tradition has always been saying. So by kind of flattening the tradition into, into escapism or some kind of quote unquote platonic expectation, he's missing that. No, no, no. What, what the tradition is pointing us toward is this great transfiguration into that which is beyond all we can ask or think. And that's that, one last point here, and I'll let you guys respond. And that's not simply about the future. That's about right now, the way that we're talking about how Jesus is present in John. Like, that's a way of imagining how the world works that doesn't make a ready sense. I mean, it's mysterious. Right. And if I can put it this bluntly, I don't think there's much mystery in what Wright is doing. And, I, and part of what I worry about, and, and let, me, let me be careful here. I think that mystery can be used in ways that are irresponsible. Like we can throw that category out in ways that would be unhelpful. And I am sure if Wright were in this conversation, he would have ways of pushing back on this. So making all those caveats. I. I think that Wright's theology is too neat. It makes too much sense in that it doesn't, and it, it doesn't open us up to, and here I'm talking broadly, not just his account of heaven, but his account of Jesus and God and scripture. It's all, it's too, it's too fixed. And what I think we see in Jesus is, is something far more staggering than that and so it, it is yes mystical and yes mysterious but i don't mean that in a vague way i mean in the sense that he is the infinite one that he's the one in which these categories hold or do not hold as they need to hold or not hold and we in order for us to give an account not only of the end of all things but to give an account for God's work in the in the present tense, we have to have that openness to the God whose ways are not our ways, and and to take that as good news. And I guess that neatness isn't is perhaps precisely the appeal. I, that's what I worry, or I, I guess suspect more than worry, is that. What right gives us is something we can get our minds around. Yeah, and I think I hear clear. Yeah, right. And I, I, I mean, I think I hear a similar caution in what Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen. Right, like you're going to want to talk about resurrection and a resurrected body in ways you can get your mind around. Absolutely. You want to imagine it, and he cautions them and says. Well, we don't actually, just caution calls them, them fools. He says, fools. Yeah, he calls them fools. <laughs> Absolutely.
don't do it. I mean, there there is obviously continuity. We don't fail. We don't cease being creatures or the creatures we are. But there is discontinuity. There is a ragged, radical um, transfiguring. And I think in a conversation, I don't know, a few months ago, probably, Chris, we were talking about mystery and divine mystery. And you made the point in that conversation that this is the mystery of God's life is not mystifying like you were saying earlier, but it, it's actually too much clarity. It's, it's, it's too clear, right. For, for us to be able to handle in our kind of brokenness and how all that's ref, refracted. It's too much goodness. It's too much clarity. And perhaps when we talk in ways that make that kind of, you know, scare quotes too much sense, mm-hmm. it actually causes us to not to, to close ourselves up to the mystery of God's life. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that is just another. I want to be careful here. But and this this is not on right by any means. This is not his fault, but it's it's easy for us to take what he said and make it into a kind of comfort that is still indulgent and indifferent. But that that doesn't actually change, fundamentally alter how we're oriented to to God and the world, God and neighbor. It just gives us a different way of being at ease. Hmm. Again, that's not his fault. I mean, that's not on him at all, but I think that's, that's possible here. And we, we need, we need the hope of heaven. Right. I mean, that line, right. Uses about, it's not life after death, but life after life after death. Absolutely. Right. It's not that we're going to heaven. Heaven is coming to us. And yet we do need to hear that in ways that are mysterious and all encompassing so that this there is even now in whatever we mean when we talk about life after death there is a way in which the dead are with the lord and the mm-hmm. dead are with us and are not dead that I, I i just don't think his account of things enables us to think right whether or not he i mean he can't say everything so this again not his fault but if we use that framework then what what comes what becomes not only of the infinite presence of god but of the presence of the angels the presence of the dead within that infinite presence and i think it's a at least in terms of how it gets used it's a it's a theology that makes the world explicable rather than mysteriously glorious for me that the change came and bill i want you to weigh in on this when you're ready but with what Wright says about jesus right in which he says we we can know we can know what jesus experience was like and i i just that's I don't think that that's true, right? That Jesus' life is mysterious in a way that none of our methods can reach. And no reading of 
of scripture and no reading of history is going to get us inside the head of Jesus so that we can understand what his agenda was, what his experience was like. And that's good news, right? That's, that's to me at the heart of the good news, but we may, we may be too far afield from the discussion here. Bill, why don't you weigh in? Well, for, I mean, this might not be interesting to anybody. Maybe it is again, if you've made it this far, maybe it will be. Um, what I'm, it's funny because as you're talking about this, like my timeline is very uh, vivid to me. And it's interesting because the the way I was formed theologically was to understand something holistically and like, that's the power of your faith. So yes. when I switched from traditional, well, I, traditional, maybe not traditional rapture theology, yeah. left behind rapture theology to... N.T. Wright's, I received N.T. Wright's theology the same way that I received that right. initial teaching. Like, okay, so this is now something I can wrap yep. my head. The reason why I don't have, I'm sitting here waiting to feel like all agitated and angry by everything you're saying. And I think the reason why I don't is because as I've journeyed down this highway to Zion, right, with you and Brewer and everybody else, I'm I'm now finally okay realizing the things that I can get my head wrapped around are usually the areas where I give myself the most angst, the most anxiety, and yeah. open to the most manipulation and abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And so to to make it really cheesy, and this is only because of the way your office is currently decorated, for everybody listening, we're we're doing this on Zoom so I can see Chris and he's his wife rightfully, Chris Green's wife, Julie, rightfully decorated his office for Christmas. But to make it acceptable, she put all Grinch decorations up there. And in that story, and I think this is what's happening to me here, is that he thought Christmas was something he could take or give. Like something he could wrap his mind around and physically mm -hmm. take it or physically give it. And I think what he realizes at the end is it's not something that easy to define it's not something that tangible it's something so much more than as he says ribbons packages boxes and bags right yep so i think that's what's happened to me in this the space between 2018 when you shattered my nt right dreams and right now is i think i've grown accustomed to the fact that i don't i don't want to be able to understand everything because it's way too small and then it becomes way too useful and then it's able to be manipulated yeah. Right. And so I, I, I think I'm sensing the transition in my own self here where it's like, like, and Bonhoeffer says it in, in his Advent devotional, the people that we know the most, if we're viewing them rightly, should be the most mysterious to us. Absolutely. Yes. And they should become the people that we know the least. Mm -hmm. And I think that's romantic in a lot of ways. Yep. And so I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's taken a while, but I can finally say, Chris, you're right. And I'm sorry for yelling at you via text. <laughs> For six months in 2018. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm right only in the sense that I'm saying there's a lot more wisdom in scripture in the tradition than Wright's account allows us to see. Yes. Right? I mean, it's not that I'm offering some alternative vision that I think is more correct than his. It's that I think there, because it's mysterious and because it's all encompassing, the truth that has been spoken in scripture in the tradition exceeds far exceeds yep. what he's giving account for so instead of surprised by hope maybe you should like counter it with a surprise by god oh wait i'm sorry 
I think you did. I think you did already. <laughs> is it fair to make that? Is it fair to say it like it's the difference between an experience or or something that is pretty versus something that is sublime? Yeah, that's exactly the difference. That's yep. exactly the difference, right? That rights account makes all the sense in the world. It's pretty. And it accounts for the prettiness of things, but it is not awesome. It does not humble you. I think it makes us worldly in a way that isn't just. Again, at least the way it's been received, whether or not that's on him or not is a different And it question. doesn't kill wishful thinking. I'm able to wish for what he's saying. Yes. But for it to be infinitely more than that, I can only hope. He should have called it surprised by wish. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> Bill, why don't you pray us out? <laughs> All right. Well, one thing, let me say this before we do. Like, I think the there's a passage that you mentioned the first Corinthians 15 through, or I think it was you, but mm -hmm. think about I want to look this up real quick because um, I, I think this this is a passage that and I know Wright has talked about this passage, but it doesn't his his reading is not at least the ones I've I, I'm, he's written so much. I'm sure I've missed some. So um, take that for what it's worth. But where Paul talks about Second Corinthians five. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling so that by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So Wright's reading of this passage is at least the ones I'm familiar with. Again, being perfectly honest here, I'm sure there are things, many things he's written about this that I haven't read yet. But I think Wright is wanting, to, at least in terms of how he's received, is the idea that this body you're looking at right now, this, this body in the Grinch room, is somehow going to be the body that is there at the end of all things, just perfect, right? Whatever that would mean. But that's that, that's not enough discontinuity to do justice to what Paul is promising here, right? That this house, this is an earthly tent, right, is going to be destroyed. And I'm going to have a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. That I'm, I'm groaning, not because this body is broken down and needs to be fixed, but because there is a body God has made for me that is eternal in the heavens. It's a house not made with hands. What, what, what is Paul looking for here? Like, we don't have categories for this. We don't even have categories for the lack of categories for this. Right? And I, that's what I think is missing. And notice how, for Paul, that, that's where our anxiety or our sighing comes from the longing for mortality to be swallowed up by life mm. mortality to be swallowed up by life 
Like that is a devouring, consuming image. That our hope is not that we will live forever, but that we're going to be consumed by life. That's an undigestible promise. And to me, that's that's just the point. And what it means to have the infinite spirit of God dwelling in us as the promise of what's meant for us is, is to point us toward that which cannot be thought. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into our hearts what God has prepared for us. And so I, I think, I don't want this to be heard as critiquing right as if I've got some better model. I'm saying... Listen, what scripture is saying to us is infinitely, exceeding abundantly beyond what we've imagined. Right, or anyone else has imagined. Okay, sorry. I, I keep delaying the end. I'm like the Lord. Right? A day with a conversation with me is as a thousand years. <laughs> no, man, that's so good. Amen. And I do think Monty. Will be with us in heaven, so don't don't miss don't 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 mishear me. <laughs> I hope so. For the listeners, Monty is my at last count hundred and ten pound giant dog. He's gorgeous. All right, Father Bill. I'll close with a prayer from um, that Thomas Odin wrote for Advent. <clears throat> we ask you, Almighty God. Let our souls enjoy this, their desire, to being kindled by your spirit, that being filled as lamps by your divine gift, we may shine like burning lights before the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, at his coming, through the same Holy Spirit, Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>